so we've come to the <coughs> excuse me to the end of our series. This is a, a five-week series called "Where Is God in This?" and we're thinking about those tough times in life where the phrase or the question "Where is God in this?" is sort of on the tips of our tongues. You know what I mean by that? Where life hits and it hits hard, and it's hard for us to see how God is at work in that particular situation. It could be uh, that it's in the context of our home life, in our relationships. Sometimes the pain that is caused in relationships, uh, it seems to sort of go below the radar, but it can be so painful that we can so easily cry out, where's God in this situation? Or perhaps in a time of temptation, either uh, that we're struggling and failing or struggling and succeeding. And, And sometimes it seems like either way we can find ourselves asking, where's God in this? Uh, during um, times of being forgotten, times of being mistreated, times when uh, we pray for something and we see so clearly what would be the next ideal thing for us and then it doesn't happen. Where's God in this? And of course, when uh, circumstances swirl around us and we feel like we're getting thrown in every direction as if we don't matter and no one's in charge of it. Where is God in this? And the story that we've been using to kind of uh, hear God's voice speaking into our circumstances and into our challenges is the story of Joseph. First book of the Bible, book of Genesis. And uh, the story of Joseph really is the story of the, the final, what is it, 14 chapters from 37 through to chapter 50. And so over the past few weeks, we've been walking our way through that story. Now, I'm going to review it because you may have missed some of the previous weeks, and we don't want to just jump into the conclusion without reminding ourselves of the story and what's happened already. But really, the story uh, of Joseph and the story of his brothers is a story that begins uh, several generations before. Actually, it's a story like all of ours, a story that begins right back at the beginning. And so at the beginning of the book of Genesis... We have God creating everything, and everything was good. And then chapter 3 happens, and sin enters. The serpent spoke to Eve and and introduced the idea that maybe God could not be trusted, that maybe God was not good, that maybe God needed some competition, and maybe you'd be best placed to be God in your life. And so Eve took the fruit, and Adam took the fruit, and in that moment they died, They died spiritually. They died in so many uh, respects that from that point on, everything was different. And the world that we live in, just like the world that Joseph lived in, is a world that's upside down and inside out and corrupted all the way through it. It's not the way God intended it to be. And so here we are living our lives surrounded by sin and sickness and things that, that don't make sense when you're reading this good, 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 good creation, but make complete sense once you get to chapter three. In chapter three, when sin entered and when death became normal, God said that he would fix it. From the very beginning, God's plan was for, for uh, God to take care of the problem. It was never for us to fix ourselves because we couldn't do it. And so from Genesis 3.15 onwards, we've got this promise that one day God would send a deliverer, someone who would defeat the serpent, who would defeat sin, who would make a way for us to be brought back into the relationship with God that we were created for. And so as you're reading through your Bibles, reading through the book of Genesis, after 3.15, you're supposed to be looking for this man, this male human being that would come and be the deliverer. And so you're looking on each chapter, who's it going to be? Who's it going to be? All we know is it's human. Uh, He's a he. That's all we've got at chapter 3. But as you go on, 
Uh, God reveals and narrows and focuses. So all the way through, we're getting more and more detail. But once we get to chapter 11, chapter 12, God calls an individual and starts to work in his family line. That man was called Abram, originally became Abraham. And God made promises to Abraham to to give him descendants, plural, to make them into a nation, to give them a land, to make them a blessing to all the families of the earth, but also to give him a descendant singular, that promised deliverer who was to come. And so from Abraham, you then go down to Isaac, and then from Isaac, you go down to Jacob, and this promise keeps advancing, and it keeps getting repeated, and it keeps getting underlined, like it's going to happen, it's going to happen. God is going to send someone who's going to take care of the problem. And we get down to Jacob, and Jacob has 12 sons plus daughters, but his 12 sons are just a little bit interesting. And so once we jumped into the story in chapter 37, we discovered that that this was a dysfunctional family, uh, really to rival any of ours. (laughs) Jacob was a a father that fell short of what was required of him in many ways, as we all do. And in his case, he lavished all of his love and kindness on one of his sons and the 10 older ones, the younger ones still to come, but the 10 older ones, they got the kind of harsh side of him. And so all the the generosity one way and all the harshness the other way, and it created an incredibly dysfunctional mess. Joseph, a spoiled brat, and 10 brothers who frankly were evil. And so Genesis 37 is where we started. And we thought about the fact that some of the most painful experiences we will ever experience in this life are experiences that consist of family life. People who should love us, who should care for us, who should be there for us and instead hurt us and betray us and, and leave us in, in all sorts of situations, who, who stab us in the back. And in Joseph's case, his brothers took him and threw him in a pit and laughed and joked about his death as they had a little meal up top. And then they changed their minds and decided since he was their brother, they should probably sell him as a slave. And so Joseph was sold by his brothers and he went off into the distance and they headed back to their dad and they told him the story and they were crying and he was crying, but he was really crying. They were pretend crying and and you kind of come to the end of the chapter and you go, where's God in this? He's not been mentioned. He's not done anything. He hasn't solved the problem. Like, come on, God, what's going on? And it reminds us, doesn't it, of those mundane realities of everyday life where sometimes, maybe often, God seems silent but he isn't absent. He's working out his purposes, even if we can't see it. And so then Genesis 38, we've referred to it several times. We didn't preach it. Uh, But Genesis 38 takes the spotlight from the 10 brothers and focuses uh, focuses it in on the one whose name was Judah. He was number four. And we see in Genesis 38 what a scoundrel Judah was. What a mess. His life was uh, just shocking in so many ways. And it's a bit of a a train wreck, to say the least. And then the focus shifts back in chapter 39 to Joseph, now a slave in Potiphar's house in Egypt. And and Joseph was blessed by God. It says several times, the Lord was with Joseph. But actually, Joseph probably didn't feel the blessing. Potiphar did. Joseph was faithful. He was doing what he needed to do. And very quickly, Potiphar realized this man can handle things. And he handed everything over to him. Just, you take care of stuff. I'm just going to sit here and binge watch box sets, you know, like whatever they did in those days. Potiphar had nothing to worry about. 
because Joseph was in charge, but Joseph had something to worry about because Potiphar had a wife, Mrs. Potiphar, and Mrs. Potiphar decided that she wanted Joseph. And so in this perfect storm of being away from home and away from the land and away from all accountability, probably a very impressively, beautifully attractive woman decided that she was going to seduce Joseph. The pressure of that moment and the no-win situation that he was in, Joseph remained faithful to God. He kept his focus on God in that situation and he fled from that sin and he was rewarded with prison. It's funny that, isn't it? Sometimes we can do the right thing and things can get worse. Where's God in this? And so Joseph was in prison and things went well. The prison uh, boss, sheriff, whatever his title was, he realized that Joseph's a trustworthy guy. So Joseph was handling the prison. He was like in charge, not in a sort of, you know, dealing drugs kind of way, but in a proper, like he could be trusted kind of way. And the prison went well and the prison guard was relaxed and Joseph was in charge. And one day these two prisoners from Pharaoh were put in there, the chief baker and the cupbearer. Talk about a divine appointment. These two guys were there and they had two dreams. Joseph had had two dreams before. Now they had two dreams and Joseph interpreted the dreams and one of them was going right back into Pharaoh's court. He would be the closest person to the most powerful man in the world. What an answer to prayer. Lord, here it is. This is what I've prayed for. And then it all came to pass. It all happened the way that Joseph said and the cupbearer went back to Pharaoh and he forgot. I mean, talk about frustrating, like all the pieces had lined up, everything that Joseph could have dreamed of. Joseph was probably quoting Ephesians 3 before it had even been written. God is able to do immeasurably abundantly beyond all that we ask or imagine. The cupbearer, can you imagine? All God's got to do now is just nudge him. Like he's got him in place, just a little nudge and he's just going, oh yeah, there's this guy, Joseph, and that's all it's going to take. Okay, Lord, do it. And the days became weeks and the weeks became months. And the months became years and Joseph was forgotten. How frustrating is it when we pray because it's so obvious what God should do. It doesn't happen. We say, where's God in this? And finally, Pharaoh had a couple of dreams which kind of triggered the memory of the cupbearer. And he said, oh, silly me, I forgot. There was this chap in jail and, and he was pretty good on dreams and maybe he's the man for you. And so, so Joseph was brought before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh tells him the dreams, and Joseph tells him what it means, and he becomes the prime minister of Egypt. He's in charge of everything, in charge of this famine relief project. And for the next seven years, he's making sure that there's food gathered and there's plenty ready, so that in the following seven years of famine, people wouldn't be dying everywhere because it was prepared for. And that's where the brothers re-enter the story. And so last week, we thought about the fact that the brothers, when they came to Egypt to get food they didn't recognize Joseph and over the course of two or three chapters we see them going back and forth back and forth and and all of this stuff going on and in the end Joseph puts them in a circumstance where they have a repeat of their greatest sin I wonder how many of us would love to be able to go back and try again where we failed They got a try again opportunity Jacob's favorite son now Benjamin Joseph's younger brother was there in Egypt and all they had to do was walk away and leave him to a life imprisoned as a slave in Egypt and go back to their dad and tell him who knows what. He wouldn't be able to find out. No internet. I mean, whatever he said, Jacob would have to believe them. 
But instead of that, Judah, of all people, Judah ends up being like Jesus. So last week we saw Judah in chapter 44 stepping forward and saying, no, 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 no. If we go back without our brother, it's going to kill our dad. Take me. I'll serve in his place. Let him go. I'll be his substitute. And Judah did a Jesus. He stepped in to set somebody else free. And so last week we thought about the fact that even though Jacob had failed so miserably as a father, God had been the father that Joseph and those brothers needed. That perfect combination of compassionate love driving everything that he did, manifesting in the perfect balance of generosity and discipline, of kindness and consequence, back and forth, as one writer put it, the perfect combination of sun and frost, hot and cold, in order to break them open to God. And God had brought the transformation in Joseph and also in Judah, And so that's where we got up to. And at that point, Joseph is overwhelmed. He's seen the full cycle over the course of decades from where he was in the wilderness, in the pit, where he was sold to to go to a life and a death in Egypt to the point where Judah was stepping forward saying, I'll I'll step forward, I'll, I'll take his place. You take me, let him go free. Joseph had seen that full cycle and he couldn't contain himself. And in chapter 45, He sent everybody out, all the Egyptians, all the bodyguards, all the the secretaries, everybody out of the room and the doors were shut and he broke down every chapter. He seems to be crying, but in 45, he just wailed with tears bouncing out of his eyes. Just, boy, he's crying. And then he said, I'm Joseph. And they were scared and he was like, no, 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 don't be scared, come here. And he said, God has done this. It's a beautiful story. It's a powerful story. And that's chapter 45 where we left off last week. And today we're going to finish the book. And you might be thinking, hang on a second. That means we've got another six chapters to go. This could be a long one, folks. We better dig in. The snow might return before this message ends. But actually, no. What I want to do is basically focus us down onto three verses. But before we do that, I just survey what's still happening in the book. I want us to see a couple of things. So chapter 45 is where we left off. I think that's on page 39 if you have one of the church Bibles. It won't be far off if you have any Bible. Okay, so somewhere early on, chapter 45 was where we ended last week. In 46, Joseph sent his wife, 45, he sent his brothers back home. He said, go home and get dad. Bring him here. I love this bit. I can't help it. In in 45 verse 24, I want us to see this. Then he sent his brothers away, and as they departed, he said to them, do not quarrel on the way. How real is that? He knows what they're like. And so he sends them off, and they go back, and they tell Jacob, and Jacob almost dies from the shock. It is a really beautiful moment. And God reassured Jacob. It's interesting how Jacob had this connection, interaction with God that we never see Joseph having. Jacob had that and God reassured him. And so Jacob came down to Egypt and Joseph went out to meet him. And there's this great reunion. And then he's introduced to Pharaoh. And that's kind of a fun story to read. If you haven't read it yet, I'd encourage you to read it. Old man Jacob with the wisdom of years speaking to this young leader, Pharaoh, who technically is in charge of the planet from a human perspective. And it's always interesting when you see a a wise old leader with a young, powerful person, you know? And so there's Jacob and Pharaoh. 
And then Jacob's family are all settled in this region. They're in this perfect location to grow and to flourish from 70 in the family at this point to a whole nation before the book of Exodus begins. And so they got all their sheep and they got all these crops and everything's exciting and positive. And Jacob comes to the end and he blesses Joseph's sons and then he blesses or prophesies over his own sons. And we're not going to go through all of that. You can see as you go through chapter 49, different elements of frustration that he'd experienced with his boys. But I want us to see what he says about Judah, because this is especially important for us. The whole book of Genesis from chapter three onwards isn't pointing to the end of this book. It's pointing to the end of the whole Bible. That promise of the coming deliverer who would be a child of Noah, a child of Shem, a child of Abraham, a child of Isaac, a child of Jacob. He's coming down through the line of Judah. And this is where we see that. In 49 verse 8, old man Jacob says this to Judah. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? Look at verse 10. The scepter, that's the the thing the king holds, right? That's a symbol of royal power. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So until tribute comes to him, is it Judah or is it looking forward? It could be translated until he comes. This future anticipated king is coming in the line of Judah. And we could go on through the Old Testament if we had time and we could trace how that line narrows all the way through. I sometimes think of it as as God being so strong, he tells his enemies what he's going to do so they can have their best shot. No, 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 focus on this family. No, no, focus on this one. Focus on this one. And the enemy's swinging away, doing everything he can to destroy God's plan. But God works his plan out. And when you come over into the New Testament, three verses in, Judas mentioned. Three verses. The line of Jesus includes Judah and Tamar. That incident in Genesis 38. What a beautiful picture that is of God's grace. God doesn't just cover over the bad things in our lives and pretend that they're gone and and pretend that we've always been wonderful. He's better than that. He's able to take the darkest corners and recesses of our experience, the skeletons in the closet, the stuff that we're most profoundly ashamed of. He's able to take those things and pour his grace in and transform them. And get to the New Testament and say, Judah, Tamar, because his grace has superabounded. Where there was a whole load of sin, God's grace was bigger. It's true for Judah, it's true for us. You might say, yeah, but you don't know what I've done. No, I don't. I know what Judah did. And I know that God's grace was bigger. And that means there's hope for us. In the mess that we create, in the baggage of our lives, there's hope. Not because we can fix ourselves, but because God can take care of it. Because his grace is bigger than any mess that we can create. So back to Genesis then, because what happens at the end of the book is that Jacob dies. Obviously a a sad moment. 
Jacob dies at the end of 49. There's great weeping and mourning and so on. And then we come to this final incident in the book of Genesis, starting at verse 15. It tells us, chapter 50, verse 15, it says this, When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin and because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. I don't know for certain, but I think they made that up. I think they panicked in that moment. I think they felt like, okay, Joseph's been really kind to us, but it was for dad's benefit. Now dad's gone we're in trouble. So they forged a little note from dad and, uh, you know, whichever one had the best dad writing and they managed to, to come out with this. But I think Joseph saw through it because it said Joseph wept when they spoke to him. They didn't really believe that they were forgiven. They didn't really trust in all the generosity and kindness that he was showing to them. And then we get Joseph's response. Here are the brothers bowing down before Joseph, afraid of him. And we get Joseph's response, three verses, three sentences. And this is what I think we need to wrap up this series, to look at these three verses and find in these three verses what we need when we are facing a life filled with where is God in this? Where's God in this situation, in this temptation, in this relational breakdown, in this tough circumstance? So let me read it to you from verse 19. Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Literally, the the word there is spoke from the heart to them. He spoke heartily to his brothers. Three sentences, three realities that need to grip us if we're going to face a life filled with challenges and difficulties and that big, big question, where is God in this? The first thing is verse 19. Now, if if you're new to the Bible, you're, you're ready for verse 19. If you've been through this a few times, you're probably going, yeah, 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 get to verse 20. That's the good one. That's the punchline, isn't it? I'm not convinced it is. I think verse 19 is worthy of our attention just as much as verse 20. Look at what he says in verse 19. Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? That's not just a Joseph issue, is it? That's a Genesis issue. That's a human issue ever since the fall when the serpent said to Eve... God did not really say. God knows that in the day you eat of it, you won't die, but you'll, you'll, know the, you'll have knowledge of good and evil. You'll, you'll know everything. You can be like God. Just take the fruit and be a God. Take the throne and be in charge of your own life. And that is human nature by default for all of us, isn't it? To say, God, no, I'm going to push you aside and I'm going to step onto the throne and I'm going to be in charge of my own little realm. 
I'm going to manipulate my circumstances. I'm going to handle things my way. I'm going to spin the truth so that people hear what I want them to hear so that I look good. I'm going to fill in my tax return and I'm just going to ignore that and ignore that because I know what's best for my finances. I'm going to cut a corner here and I'm going to tell a half truth there. I'm going to not say this and I am going to say that and I'm going to put this best foot forward and I'm going to make sure that I am in charge of what is best for me. That's what's in all of us, isn't it? That's a default within us. But God brought Joseph to the point of realizing that that was the problem. That the idea that God is not God and that I can be God is at the very heart of our problem. If we're going to live life in this world, that's going to be where we go wrong. Let me just read to you a couple of verses earlier just to underline that Joseph got this. Back in chapter 39, when Potiphar's wife, Mrs. Potiphar, was you know, trying to uh, do what she was trying to do with him, Joseph's response was basically, God is still in charge. Right? God is God. And so how can I do this wicked thing, this great wickedness and sin against God? 39 verse 9. God's on the throne. And so I cannot do what you're asking me. In chapter 40, when the the prisoners came to him and said, we've got these dreams and they're freaking us out, we don't know what to do. And Joseph said, not, I've got some history with dreams, you know, know, I I can probably help. No, he says, do not interpretations belong to God. That's 40 verse 8. In chapter 41, when he's brought before Pharaoh, incredible moment, this is his big break. He's standing in front of Pharaoh and Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world who thought he was a god says, I hear you're good with dreams. And Joseph says, no. Ooh, oops. Looks like he's going to blow it. And then he says, God interprets dreams. That's courageous. To say to Pharaoh, there's a God in heaven who interprets dreams, and you're not him, and neither am I. Later on in the same chapter, when Joseph named his sons, he said, God has made me forget. That's the first son. And the second one, God has made me fruitful. You see, time and again in the story of Joseph, he was clear that God is God. And so when he gets to the end, 50 verse 19, and his brothers stand before him and say, don't kill us, don't kill us. He says, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? No, I'm not. God is in charge. And that's the first truth that's got to grip us. That no matter what the circumstance might be, no matter what the temptation, no matter how obvious it is that this should be the outcome, no matter how easy it seems to manipulate the outcome, no matter what the circumstance we face, if we're going to live life in the way that God intended, we've got to be gripped by the fact that God is God. And I am not. That's number one. Truth number two comes in verse 20. When Joseph says to them, The famous, famous verse, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. This again was something he'd said before in chapter 45 when they panicked discovering who he was. He said to them in 45 verse 5, God sent me before you to preserve life. And in verse 7, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. You didn't send me here. God sent me here. And then a couple of verses further down, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. You intended it for evil, but God meant it for good. 
Now, it's easy to say that with hindsight, isn't it? When you get to the other end of the story and you look back, it's easy to say with hindsight, look at what God did. But if we're going to live life under the black cloud of uncertainty, if we're going to live life with great temptation and with great family pain and with great circumstantial difficulty, that's a reality that's going to have to grip us all the way through. Not just that God is God, but that God is good. Little children, my little children have had these little books, you know, maybe you've seen them where you get color by number or, or join the dots. Have you seen those? I heard someone use this illustration. I thought, that's perfect. It's, it's so simple. But they'll get a, a, a thing. I'm, I'm thinking tiniest children, not my older ones. They're okay at this now. But the little ones, they'll see a picture and it'll be like waves and, you know, seagulls. And then there's some dots and they're looking at it. And I look at it and it's a boat, isn't it? You just see it. It's obvious. But when you're like three, you're, okay, one, where's one? One, where's two? Two, where's three? Oh, where's three? They, they, it takes them hours, it's brilliant. And they, they go through it and eventually, hopefully, they've got near enough to the dots that they can step back and go, oh, Daddy, it's a boat. And they, you don't say, well, obviously it's a boat. I could have told you that an hour ago. You say, yeah, and you join in with them and you celebrate it with them. But that's a taste of what God has. Here we are like three-year-olds and we can't see how this dot joins to that dot to do anything good. But from God's perspective, he can see the whole picture, not just for your life, but for other lives and how they intersect. And not just for this year, but over the centuries. And God has got this great dot to dot that he's drawing. And we're going, where's the next dot? This makes no sense. From God's perspective, he knows what he's doing. And here's the thing, he's doing it well. He's good at it. Maybe you've heard the illustration of the great tapestry that God is weaving with our lives and all we see are the threads and sometimes the threads are gold or yellow or silver or something bright and colorful, some green and some light blue and you go, oh, this is great, but there are times when the threads are black and sometimes they're just little short threads that are black. Sometimes they're great long threads, whole sections that seem to be colored in black day after day, month after month and you say, where's God in this? And it may be that we never have hindsight in this life to see what he's doing. But when we step into the next life and that tapestry gets turned around and we see what God intended, we're going to look and we're going to say, wow, you do all things well. And sometimes I have to remind myself, God's never going to need to apologize to me for anything. No mistakes. No, sorry, missed that one. And it's not just the big stuff, is it? Sometimes the tiniest black threads can, can cause me to question God. It's four o'clock. I finished in work at five and I've got an hour left and I've got three things to do on my to-do list and then my phone pings and my heart sinks and sure enough, there's a problem with a computer and I've got to go home and sort a problem with the computer and it's not a big deal, but my gut reaction is, God, what are you doing? Where did that come from? How is it that, that I can't trust God for one hour? The smallest thing and I can instinctively react with frustration. Come on, let's admit it. We all struggle, don't we? We struggle to trust God in the little things, let alone the big things. But the day is coming when he's going to reveal the big plan. And I tell you, we're not going to have a dry eye. We're going to be weeping with, with gratitude and praise. And God is not going to say, oh yeah, now about this bit, I'm really sorry. I totally messed that part up. Because he knows what he's doing with our lives. When Eve took that fruit and gave it to Adam, they bit into the lie that God is not good. 
But we've got to be gripped by the truth that he is. That he knows what he's doing. God is God, verse 19. God is good, verse 20. And if those two truths can grip us, that will create within us a humility because God is God and I am not. And a confidence because God is good. And even if I can't see what he's doing, I'm going to trust him and I'm going to move forward. Humility and confidence. Those are good traits. And when those two truths grip us, then the third truth can be a reality. Look at verse 21. God is God and God is good. And therefore, Joseph was able to bless his enemies. Now, we've talked a lot over these past few weeks about difficult circumstances, about times where life is tough, where we don't know what we're going to do next, how we're going to handle it, how do we trust God in this, how do we trust God in that. But actually, one of the hardest things, and maybe one of the most important things, one of the most uh, clear indicators that we've come through a difficult time and trusted God through it and he's done his work in us is when we come to the point where face-to-face we're able to bless somebody who's so deeply hurt us. And if it's not face-to-face, maybe in prayer, to pray for somebody who stabbed you in the back, somebody who's told lies about you, somebody that scarred you, and to be able to say, Lord, I don't know where they are right now, but I pray you'll bless them. I pray that you'll give good things to them. That's what Joseph's saying to his brothers. His brothers are there panicking that he's going to take vengeance on them. And Joseph says, you don't need to fear. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to feed you. I'm going to look after you. I'm going to bless you. It's only possible because the first two truths had gripped him, that God is God and God is good. Now, if we finish the message there, I suppose we might feel a bit of pressure to try harder to bless our enemies. And it may be that that alone is already a pressure that's too much to bear. It's fine talking about getting through the tough times, but the hardest thing is to imagine being kind to somebody that you despise from the core of your being. Somebody that, to be honest, if you pray about them, you pray that God would wipe them out. May they be caught in a bad situation. May they be hurt. And and we pray those prayers much more easily than Lord bless them. How is it possible if we don't find within us that kind of extraordinary Christ-like love? Well, I think maybe that's the point of Genesis. It's to point us beyond the story of Genesis and to point us beyond ourselves because as we've gone through these few weeks, we've seen the transformation of Judah from rotten scoundrel in 38 to acting Christ-like in 44. We've seen the transformation of Joseph from spoiled brat in 37 to Christ-like kindness in chapter 50. Judah and Joseph, the whole book of Genesis are pointing us beyond Genesis and pointing us to Jesus to that deliverer, that one that God sent, the one who had every right to say, I am God. And yet he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. To one who faced the most horrendous and horrific circumstances and the attacks of his enemies. And in that moment, he entrusted himself to God who judges justly. He knew that God is good. He knew that God is God. And he stepped forward and he went all the way to that cross knowing that he was going to pay a price that was not his to pay. And as the reality of who Jesus is grips us, that's where we can discover the transforming power 
of these truths. It's not that we have to manufacture love within us. It's that we need to fix our gaze on Jesus and see what he did for us, his enemies, what he did 2,000 years ago when he died and what he does every single day as he feeds us and cares for us, the people who spat in his face and wished him dead. That's where, that's where God's word does a work in us, not by pressuring us to, to fix ourselves, but by lifting our hearts to look at who our God is. And it's in Jesus that we see most clearly that God is God, that we are not, and that God is good, and we can trust him. And as we trust him, we can become more like him. We can be changed by him. And we can even, maybe we've not even thought about it yet, but we can even become someone who would bless our enemies, who would care for those who've hurt us. Only God can do that. What we're going to do now is just take a couple of minutes just to pause and reflect. Maybe you've only been here today, and that's fine because I've given you the whole series in one. So, you know, bonus material. But maybe you've been here for all five weeks. doesn't particularly matter. Just where you are in twos, threes, fours, maybe just share a highlight, something that stood out, something that's encouraged you, something that's challenged you, something that you say, well, I need to go away and, and pray about this. I'm not saying, you know, kind of bare your soul to a stranger or anything like that. But just where you are, turn around. It may be that somebody shares something and you go, oh, I'm going to pray for them for that. And you can pray later. This is just a time to, to share and to allow the truths that we've heard to kind of drive into our hearts as we hear them from each other. So just two or three minutes, just share briefly anything that comes to mind. And then I'm going to come back and I'm going to pray and introduce communion. We'll do communion and then we'll sing to finish up the service. Okay, so today's message or any of these messages, where is God in this? Just share any thoughts you want to share with those around you, and I'll be back in just a couple of minutes.